Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us and happy to have these guys here today. Good morning, Philip. Good morning, Brad. Morning, Brian. Morning, Brad. So we're happy to have you with us listening as well. And as always, if you have questions, you can send those to us at bci at ksu.edu. Also, we've got another podcast that you may want to give a listen to called Bovine Science with BCI, which gives us a chance to dive into a little bit deeper into some of the topics like nutrition or, or Brian, you've done some on pharmacology or new research that's come out. Great opportunity to have a little more in-depth discussion if you want to give that a listen. And we're open to suggestions there as well if you have a topic you'd like to learn more about. But on today's show, we're going to talk about water issues and what to do when the ponds are pretty low. Talk a little bit about hay cutting and storage. And then Brian's going to tell us a little bit more about Guidance 263, which has now gone into effect here in the U.S. relative to antibiotic use. Before we get into those topics, guys, we're missing Bob and Dustin today because they're traveling, which summer is the travel season. So I want to know also when you're traveling, you're traveling with your family, you may end up eating breakfast on the road. I want to know what's your go-to to breakfast stop if you're traveling on the road so it could be fast food could be convenience store could be you're gonna go get pancakes wow i think it depends it's a it's a really difficult question brian give it some thought don't just answer right off the top of your head am i in a hurry or do i have time to sit down you got time i don't know i mean like denny's and ihop those kinds of places i like to go to once in a while oh uh cracker barrel that's a good one yeah i if i have the choice to sit down yeah i'm with philip i'm um, pancakes and scrambled eggs and yeah yeah if we get to eat on the go then it's probably like a breakfast burrito from some fast food yeah place yeah yeah, yeah we we frequent several of them so yeah <laughs> burrito chicken bowl whatever <laughs> so you, you you guys didn't really do favorites you just named breakfast foods i could have said how about you name as many breakfast foods as you can and you guys did really well at that part <laughs> i can name some more i miss so, biscuits so, and gravy i mean i got lots right. more oh yeah <laughs> Steak and eggs. So, so is any one of those a favorite? <laughs> if I'm on the go, like we like, I like the Chick Fil A breakfast bowls. That's my favorite. Yeah, Philip. I don't know. I like I like a big breakfast. I'm a big breakfast eater, so I I'll get pancakes and eggs and so you really and, did or biscuits it. and gravies. Oh yeah, yeah, you did want everything. Huh? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. So I'm gonna jump into. We talked a little bit, and we've talked about water quality before and the importance of water quality and how much the water intake of cattle changes in the winter versus the summer with it being about twice as high in the summer and a lot of our especially adults one of the issues that many parts of the country are facing is that drought continues while we've had some rain in some parts too much rain in some parts other parts have really dry and it's resulted in low ponds what are some of the things to start thinking about when my ponds are getting pretty darn low and brian i'm going to Go to you first. So I think of a couple things. One is cattle need water, right? So you have you have to get water to them somehow, and whether that's hauling water to them, whether that's moving them to a different pasture, whether that's pumping water. I mean, all all of those things are on the table, but they have to have water. So that's one. The other thing is as as the ponds are getting low you typically will get a lot more traffic to that smaller and smaller area. And so making sure that it's accessible. I mean, if your plan is to basically use up the pond, right? If if that's in nature, doesn't replenish it. And you're going to use that as the sole water source. You know, a lot of times when those get low, they're not very accessible. So making sure that the accessibility is still good, even as those ponds continue to shrink. That great point, Brian, because the pond is getting smaller and we go, oh, it looks like it's dried out. The cattle can get in. 
but that muck that has been on the edge or what was previously the pond bottom will get a crust on top, but you put a 1,200-pound cow on top of it, she's going right through, and they got to dig through that. Well, and, and depending on what shape and form your pond takes, you know, some of those get some pretty steep sides. If they're deep and they've really dried up, you know, they may get steep sides, and so maybe they get to it, but getting out might be an issue as well. So. Yeah, absolutely, and, and it changes the water quality that's in there because the pond has a natural flow, right? you got a deep pond, nice deep pond, it's going to turn over, you're going to get those changes in the water you get to a puddle it gets pretty stagnant and pretty poor quality water well it gets stagnant and you got more traffic in there so the cattle are turning it up there's more fecal contamination all of those so you know there are some true health risks that we worry about when you get very extreme dry up but i mean my first two things are making sure they have good quality water and then make sure the accessibility is good so dilution is the solution to pollution is what we've talked about a lot and if you don't have very much water there it's hard to dilute. So what are some of my options here, Philip? Well, I think it kind of depends on whether you think this is a temporary problem or you need a more long-term solution because this happens frequently. And so the solution for a temporary problem is to haul water, put tanks out there and haul water. But if it's a more uh, long-term problem that you need to come up with a solution for, then you're probably looking at drilling wells, maybe running water line if you're close enough to roll water or something like that. There's some, you know, the, the issue with well is usually always electricity, but there's some new well pumps out there that run on solar. So that really frees you up and it adds a lot of flexibility into being able to put a well in different places. But then the other thing to think about too is how's this gonna affect my grazing? So you know, if I got different pastures that depend on a stock pond and the pond is drying up, you know, maybe I need to change my strategy for grazing this year and I need to graze that pasture early so that I still have water in that pasture and I can use that forage and then I can move them to other pastures that have a better water source that are like do have a well or it's easier to haul water to or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think good points. And, and we're also talking about kind of temporary solutions are possible to consider. So you talked about running water to those pastures. We're not burying a line. We're not doing things like that. We may run it. And I've seen some systems where they have even portable waters for grazing systems where they will put pipe on top of the ground. And then at the end of the year, you drain the pipe before it freezes move on to the next year so that there are some options out there yeah i've, I've seen uh, one circumstance where the producer used very intensive rotational grazing and he would run pipe on top of the ground down the electric fence line and then he had put valves in at so many every so many feet and then that's where he would move the water tank to when he rotated to the next section so think plan ahead if you're going to do that where do i want to put that water when i rotate cattle to a new pasture and have a valve already in place there where you can just move the water tank and hook it up to the new valve and and fill her up and go. And you're probably not going to have too many valves because it's, yep. you may want to move that water even within the same paddock, depending on how it goes. The other thing I'm going to mention relative to hauling water, you and I have our offices down the hall from a couple of toxicologists. And every year will tell us of somebody that has hauled water to cattle. And they said, well, we rinsed out. There was spray, some sort of chemical in the water tank before. Said we rinsed it really thoroughly. Essentially, those plastic 
tanks that we haul water in frequently, you can't rinse them good enough. Once something else has been in it beside water, it is no longer eligible to be a water tank is the rule of thumb that I would use. It's not that you can rinse it and say, I did a good job rinsing it because you may have done fine, but that, those chemicals are still there. Yeah, the rule of triple rinse before you throw the jug away or do whatever doesn't hold for some of those chemicals and especially fertilizers talking to the toxicologist the other day just about this issue and he has the thought that those plastic polymers may hold on to nitrates and things like that and so you, there's just no way you can rinse it enough to get it diluted enough to where it will not kill cattle when you haul water in those tanks yeah so and when you're hauling water don't skimp it's hard to i mean but they're going to drink a lot of water so it'll, it'll take a tremendous amount so you probably need a big reservoir to put it in and you need big tanks to haul it out in depending on how many cows you've got out there you know <clears throat> philip made a good point about you know short-term versus long-term solutions and if this is a recurrent problem a couple things you might think about one if if it's a long-term problem but it's more sporadic so some years we get rain and we're good some years we don't and hauling water seems to be a reasonable solution you might actually think about putting a high capacity pump close to wherever you're pumping just from somebody who has sat there and watched the garden hose for you know 30 to 40 minutes right so i mean those makes it easier and then the other thing if it's a if it's possible to find a spot for another pond it might just be you need multiple ponds as a long longer term solution yeah absolutely so plan that out and hopefully everybody makes it through that part but the sooner you get on it it gives you an opportunity to plan like you said philip it affects our grazing the lack of water can also change our hay supply we think about hay and making hay at this time of year i've talked to some folks that have said their hay production is down because of the dry early in the year so it makes what we make even more important to make sure that we get both quantity and quality so what what are some things you're thinking about as you're making hay So the two things to think about, and you mentioned them there when making hay, is quality and quantity. So we're talking about basically digestibility of the forage versus the yield I'm going to get off the hay field with one cutting. You know, some types of forages I can get multiple cuttings a year, and other types I'm only going to get one cutting a year. And so there's a balancing act there because as the plant matures and you get more tonnage per acre out there, the digestibility of that forage goes down. And there is a point where if you put those two numbers together and you look at the tonnage of digestible forage out there, it actually plateaus at some point where I'm getting more tonnage out there, but the digestibility is going down so fast that the actual amount of nutrients that are out there is basically in a plateau phase. And so I want to try to harvest forage somewhere before that plateau starts. And so it's a balancing act there, finding that place. And it depends on a little bit on what type of cattle you're going to feed it to. If I'm feeding, you know, if I'm, if I calve, let's say in late spring, and mostly I'm going to be feeding it to late gestation cows through the winter, then I can probably wait a little bit longer, closer to that plateau phase and get more tonnage per acre because I don't need as high a quality. 
If I'm an early calver or a fall calver and I need high quality hay to feed the lactating cows, I need to harvest it much earlier in the growing stage so that I get higher quality hay that will meet the nutritional needs of those lactating cows. But I'm going to have less quantity in that case, in yes. which case I've got to figure out where to replace some of that with. So Brian, as we think about that, part of it is how well I make the hay. Part of it is how I store that hay. Yeah. And I mean, there's lots of different options for how you can put up and store hay, right? And most of the time, it just depends on what kind of equipment resources you have. So, I mean, at our house, we just have some horses and no tractor, no, but we got teenagers, right? So we deal with small squares for us, right? And other people, large squares, large rounds, you know, seem to do better. You know, the other thing about hay storage, I guess, from a health perspective to kind of consider is there are quite a few people, seems to become more popular, that like to feed net wrapped bales and just not worry about the wrap, right? Let the cows eat the wrap. And we know that that can cause some issues that's obviously not a digestible product. And so we do see some healthy, some intestinal obstructions, things like that. So again, just how you put up and store your hay really kind of, or if you're purchasing hay, really kind of depends on what resources you have to, to deliver that back to your cattle. So um, those are things I think about. Well, and it ties into exactly what you're, and great point on the net wrap because it's not going to go away, but it ties into my storage should be dictated by how I'm planning to feed it and who I'm planning to feed it to, right? So can I make sure that I save some of that? We talked about the balance quantity versus quality. And Philip, last year, we had some round bales that we put on pallets, which which I will say is kind of a pain in the butt. I mean, you, you got to get the pallets there. You got to get them set up. You got to take them every time you take a bale off, you got to move a pallet. It takes a little bit longer. But man, what a difference just getting them off the ground makes in that bottom part of the bale. They're not falling apart even at the end of the winter. What are some other things like that to impact our storage capacity? Well, so thinking about storage, storing bales, particularly we think about big round bales and keeping those in the best quality that we can, not let them deteriorate over the winter. And so the biggest problem is moisture. So we're trying to get rid of moisture and keep moisture out of the bale. So some different things that we can do is number one, we can put them in a barn, which, but that adds quite a bit of cost, but that's, that's like kind of like the gold standard. That's the way you're going to maintain the best quality. Like Brian mentioned net wrap, net wrap is actually fairly useful in this instance compared to string uh, tied bales is because the net wrap sheds water. And so that helps shed water off the bale instead of letting it soak in. But then when it comes to storing them outside, there's two things that, well, or maybe three that, that we want to focus on. One, getting them up off the ground because that moisture wicks up through from the ground into the bottom of the bale and that destroys the quality of the bottom part of the bale. And then spreading them out where sun can get in there and dry things out. So number one, like don't store your hay bales along the edge of the hay field under the trees. Which is where we want to put them because that gets them out of the way and doesn't damage our future hay crop. Exactly. But it also lets that bale deteriorate a lot faster because the moisture gets in there when it rains and it doesn't dry out. And then another thing along that the same lines is orient your hay bale rows north and south and leave about a three foot gap between rows of bales so that as the sun comes up over the top of those from east and west, the sun is getting down between each one of those rows throughout the day to dry things out between those rows. 
And if you can, spray and kill weeds between the rows of brown bales. So again, you're not holding moisture in there um, around those bales. Essentially, we're letting the sun dry them out as it travels east to west over the top of those bales. The shade from one row is not completely shading out the other throughout the day. Yeah, and I think the last thing I kind of think about when we talk about hay storage is to how many animals am I going to present it? And so, you know, if I'm a a small hobby operation and I have five cows, a large round bale sitting out in the pasture may not because they're going to waste a lot of it, right? And so uh, vice versa, if I have 200 cows out on pasture, small squares probably aren't a good option. It's a lot more labor intensive. So I always think about wastage, not just in storage, but also during feeding, making sure they're consuming it fast enough where it's not wasted post presentation or post feeding. Mm -hmm. It'll save you some of your hay resources there too. Great point, Brian. And I, and I think that's, you're, you're trying to maximize, get the right amount to the cows. So we'll Talk more about that as, as we move forward. Hopefully have a good and safe haying season. We didn't talk about safety, but be safe as you're out there making hay. The other thing I, we wanted to talk about today, Brian, a little bit of a play on words, Guidance 263 and me. Remind us, we've talked about Guidance 263 before. Tell us what it is and how it's going to affect us. Yeah, so Guidance 263, when you talk about guidance, we're talking about FDA guidance. So this is the FDA's plan to move the last remaining medically important antimicrobials, so the injectable products, the oral products that weren't affected by the VFD, move them from over-the-counter products to prescription products. And, and that went into effect this week. And so, so one of the questions might be, well, do I need a prescription now to get those? And the answer is, Sort of. Yes, you do. But the way that FDA guidance 263 is rolling in is it's a change in the label. So the FDA has directed the pharmaceutical companies to change their labels to read as prescription products. And so if it's a labeled product and it has the called the legend, which is the little RX symbol, and it says for use under the authorization of veterinarian, you have to have a prescription to purchase it. But the FDA is not requiring either veterinary clinics or feed stores or whoever to simply, they don't have to pull all the -the over-the-counter product off the shelf this week. You might still find what basically what the FDA is going to do is allow that to deplete out and any new product that is manufactured will have the new label on it. And so if it's, and we may actually get into a situation where you would have over-the-counter product sitting right next to prescription product. You don't need a prescription for the -the over-the-counter if that's how it's labeled, but you do for the prescription labeled product. And so there will be a little bit of a transition. And typically in the past, the FDA has given us a period of time. And that's what they're doing here is they're giving a period of time for that previously over-the-counter labeled product to simply deplete out of commerce and it'll be replaced by new product that's labeled as prescription. But once it's labeled as prescription, you have to have a prescription from a veterinarian to purchase it, which requires that your veterinarian has that veterinary client-patient relationship with you. So they understand they've either seen the animal that it's been prescribed for or they're familiar enough with your operation through timely medical visits that they can at least make a little bit of a diagnosis and then follow up with you after that's after it's been prescribed. So just to clarify, Brian, I think this is what you said. 
if I have one of those products at home today, I can still use it because it was non-prescription if when it, I got it. The over-the-counter products, the over-the-counter. yes, you can continue to use them. Yep. If I if I go buy one and it has the RX label on it, I'm going to have to have a prescription to purchase that. And from here on out, that's just going to be the way it is. And, and yeah. for that, I need to have a veterinary client-patient relationship, which means I need to establish that with my veterinarian before I get a prescription for Absolutely. any of those products. Yeah, and I wouldn't count on walking in and finding over the count. I would establish that relationship today and probably actually last week or before that. And so you want to have that in place. But once that's in place, the actual process for getting a prescription from your veterinarian, we've been through the veterinary feed directive process, which is actually a little more tedious than the prescription process. So work with your veterinarian, figure out which products you need, which products aren't needed, you have that relationship in place and you really shouldn't have any issues acquiring these these products in the future. So Brian, I got a question for you. So the other day I went into the local farm supply store and I had need to buy some vaccine for my kids' bucket calves. And so I was getting a clostridial and a respiratory vaccine and the clerk told me that as of June 11th, when this 263 came into effect, I would have to have a prescription to buy those vaccines. Is that part of this too, or or just antibiotics? So no, it's not part of this. So vaccines, and I mean, the easy way to say it is vaccines are regulated by the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture. Drugs are regulated by the FDA. So FDA guidance has no impact on biologics, vaccines. And actually this particular guidance only applies to human medically important antimicrobials. So things like ionophores, are not affected either, right? We don't. We still don't require prescription for ionophores. You would have to put them on a VFD if they're fed with a medically important antimicrobial, but they won't require prescription. Things like coccidia stats, unless they are a true antimicrobial, they wouldn't fall under this. So, so no, those other products should not be affected. Really what we're talking about, and there might be a few that I'm missing, but injectable penicillin products would be human medically important. Injectable tetracycline products, oral sulfoboluses, those are probably the three big ones that'll be affected by this that were previously over the counter that have now moved to prescription. So there might be a couple others, but that should be most of them. Excellent. So I think a couple of the take-homes there, have a veterinary client-patient relationship. Go talk to your veterinarian. This is going to affect, there will be no more over-the-counter antibiotics that are medically important for humans. Does not affect our ionophores, which are technically antibiotics, but we don't use those in humans. So great clarifications there, Brian. And if you have questions on that, that'd be a good topic of conversation for your veterinarian. And you can certainly send us questions. If you have questions for us here, you can send them to us at bci at ksu.edu.